Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Rank Up, an on-page SEO podcast where we talk about technical SEO, content optimization, search engine news, and much more. I'm one of your hosts, Ben Gary, and I'm joined once again by my regular co-host, Ed Wilson. You doing all right, Ed? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I've actually just ate a whole bag of sour sweets, so if I speak a little more quickly than I normally do, then you'll uh, you'll know it's due to this sugar rush. But yeah, yeah, is, I'm all good other than that. Is that what counted as lunch for you today? Uh, no, I, I think I always kick off the um, podcast with lunch news, but um, no, it's no, that was just a dessert as you would. Um, yeah. Well, after the revelation in the last podcast that you found noodles and shreddies as an acceptable lunch, I, think yeah. I feel like I have to ask now. <laughs> no, slightly less chaotic this time. That's that's all right. I was I was a little bit concerned for you after that point. <laughs> um, we're also joined today by Jerry White, the SEO director at Rise at Seven, uh, and a freelance SEO consultant who, as we'll hear in uh, in a few minutes, has uh, had a had a storied career already so far in SEO. So we're excited to have you, Jerry. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Yeah, I don't blame Ed for having uh, cereal at lunch. Not at all. Um, something I've done quite frequently. I'm not going to say I did it today. Yeah. It was it was less just the cereal and more the combination of shreddies and noodles. Okay, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll have to move on from that as, as quickly as we can because we do have an SEO topic to get into today other than Ed's lunch. Um, and uh, we're, we're going to take advantage of Jerry being our very first guest from another SEO agency outside of Impression. Um, to dive into quite a big topic that I think uh, a lot of us in agencies will come across at one point or another. Um, but I think uh, we'll kind of encounter in different ways depending on the clients that we're working with and the specific requirements of those businesses as opposed to say we're, we're working in-house and, and working in one environment that we're used to all the time. Uh, and that is enterprise level technical SEO. Um, so we're going, we're going in quite a big one today, going in fairly deep. Um, but if this sounds unfamiliar to you at this stage, uh, it may well be something you've encountered already uh, and haven't necessarily put that label to, or it may be that if you haven't got, if you haven't encountered it before, uh, you're going to be encountering it before too long because, as I said, many of us in agencies will come across this at some point. So we've got a lot to go into, uh, but first, as we usually do, I want to give Jerry a chance to introduce himself and give us a bit of his background. Um, so, Jerry, how did you get to uh, to where you are today? What's your story in SEO? Oh, it's a long one. Um, unlike most of my colleagues, I'm actually a little bit older than everybody else. I've been in the digital world for about 20 years. Um, I did dip in and out. I actually went to sales, recruitment, various other bits and pieces. Yep. At one point, I tried building web pages. I did web development. I did web design and other bits and pieces. But it turned out that people I worked with were better at that. But I found that I could hold my own when it came to elements like analytics, SEO, and similar bits and pieces. So kind of an all-round knowledge of digital yeah. combined with a good knowledge of how the internet actually works has kind of proven quite useful over my career. So that's basically where I've got into um, where I am today. Have you always been uh, in agencies or have you been in-house in, in your no, career? No, so I've flipped between the two. So the, the last, so my current role is agency at Rise at 7. Um, before that, I was the technical lead at uh, Just Eat, which is the yeah. recently been, uh, uh, what's the word for it? It's, it's kind of joined with takeaway.com. So it's now oh, yeah. so many markets and it's, it's an absolutely huge brand. That was really good fun. 
Uh, before that, I was at a couple of agencies, and then before that, I was in-house. Uh, before that, I was at the BBC, and before that, I was at the government, and before that, I think I was doing finance. So I've kind of done a range of different topics over the years. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty broad level of experience, I think, and and I imagine something that still helps in in your SEO work today, having a bit of a bigger background like that. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I kind of always try to fall back on is an understanding of how the businesses work, how the customers work, how the data works, rather than just kind of straight what works for Google. Mm. And I think with the topic that we're talking about today, we're going to see that quite a lot with these bigger businesses that we work with. Absolutely. So uh, before we go into that, just quickly, your role now at Rise at Seven uh, is it SEO director is the title. And uh, what does that involve? Uh, good question. A lot of it is client work. So I do work across all of the clients that we work with. Um, I, I focus on a couple of clients myself where there's some something of interest to them. So we're working a lot on page speed. We're working a lot on analytics works. So it really does depend. I mean, that's the classic yeah. SEO answer, isn't it? But from day to day, I can't give you an answer as to what I'd be sure. doing kind of the next day. But a lot of it is basically talking through clients and trying to get things done some way with different clients. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's awesome. I think we'll, we're going to get into it now um, because I think a lot of what you've just said is now going to feed into this big topic of enterprise SEO. Uh, and we're going to start, uh, as, is, as is probably a good idea to do with any sort of industry term like this, to say what is it that we're talking about. So uh, how do you define enterprise SEO, Jerry, and, and why is it worth talking about in its own category as opposed to other types of SEO we might be doing? That's a good question. And I actually didn't really think about this until I kind of had this topic coming up. Um, enterprise SEO, I think you can kind of define in two different ways. One of them is either the sheer scale of the site, so we're talking about like millions of pages, mm. or alternatively, where it's a high traffic site or it's a really commercially sensitive site, like banks, for instance, don't have a lot of pages. Yeah, it's absolutely critical that nothing breaks on it. So there's the, the, those are the two elements of it. Um, enterprise sites often have uh, particular issues, for instance, legal teams and deployment processes. You can't just hack stuff onto a website in the same way that you can do with a mom and pop or WordPress site, for instance. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we, Ed, is that what you've come across in, in your career as well? Because I think this is something you're, you're fairly yeah. familiar with too in your work. Yeah, definitely. I think, I guess, initial thoughts is when you first learn about enterprise SEO. I guess, Jerry, is what you mentioned, you normally assume it's um, associated to kind of the size of the website and to, as you mentioned there like millions potentially millions of urls whereas actually enterprise on its own level can be you know the size of that company um, that contri contributes to that kind of online presence on the website or you know high traffic volatility you know in terms of people visiting the website and having that reliance on traffic to certain pages not just like user facing pages but the back end of it as well mm. And one thing that is like critical that you don't see in other places is things like information security. I can't mm. just sort of plug something in. I can't install a plugin, for instance, without InfoSec going through it or something like that. And basically, security, risk management, legal teams, it's all another level of nightmare just to get something quite simple done. And it is amazing how often an agency will be surprised by the fact that doing something very simple takes six months to 12 months when, you know, for another site, it's just install the Yoast plugin or something similar. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people, uh, me uh, speak, uh, speaking as well, is that I've um, had that struggle of, you know, to a certain level of earlier on in my SEO career in terms of working on smaller clients and finding like 
um, I guess how agile they are is like the kind of thing that you think is a given when working on websites, but then when you start working at larger companies and think, focus on tasks that you think would be developed with ease and then under, under, you know, understanding the roadblocks that can potentially come along, you start to think, oh, actually, you know, this isn't easy as, <laughs> as implement it as it once was earlier on in my SEA career. And then you have to go on undertaking a different approach to these things in terms of like implementing processes, understanding how you can feed into it and making sure that the items that you're recommending have that kind of easy delivery process and under, uh, making sure that everyone is on board as well. Can I just clarify as well when we're when we're talking about larger sites, is it mostly e-commerce sites that we're talking about as the most common, or are there other things that we're looking at with these giant sites? I think you could say e-commerce, finance. Um, there's sites that are just like informational as much as anything. So it's it's often that they are complicated in their own right, but not necessarily e-commerce. They usually okay. do have. Uh, like some kind of transactional thing, whether or not it's customer information or something like that, but it isn't necessarily just exclusively e-commerce. Cool. I think that's helpful when we're um, kind of uh, talking about this conversation. So I know for me, and I think they imagine a lot of other people when we think of big sites, we think of a, a massive online store, uh, but that isn't necessarily the sum total of what enterprise SEO is. So we'll go into a, a kind of a follow-up question now then which i think will hopefully let us get into this a bit more which is um what are some of the most common issues that you come across and i'll ask this to jerry first then we'll probably come to you as well ed um regarding search engines and also um kind of the the user the user experience considerations as well what what common issues do you come across when working on them so i think the biggest problem is um Am I allowed to swear? Oh, I won't swear. Um, <laughs> the, the acronym GSD, getting stuff done. Um, yeah. Some people use it slightly differently, but very diplomatic. <laughs> but basically, getting things signed off, um, fixing legacy systems. So again, with enterprise websites, you often discover that there's a core component, a a part of it which powers part of the site, which will be. 10, 15 years old. Um, a great example is Premier Inn, for instance, when they did a site migration, it turned out that part of the processes underpowering the site was actually older than the internet because it was the room booking system. Oh. <laughs> the BBC site search, um, which, which was fed through so much of the BBC itself, that was, again, so legacy, and nobody really knew exactly what was powered by it. So it was almost, if we switch it off, how much of the website will break? Because yeah. there's the website that was just a little bit older than anybody who'd actually worked there. So I think that's one of the biggest problems. I, a good example is something as simple as an XML sitemap when it's built out of half a dozen different components and the URL structure isn't actually mapped anywhere exactly. And sometimes these things are built on the fly. It's not as simple when it's a legacy system as when it's kind of a modern system with you building something in, in mind. So it is, it is often quite challenging to kind of basically get signed off to rebuild a component that is 10 years old, underpowers everything, but nobody exactly knows how and where it's built. I think the other side of it is things like a, something as simple as a sitemap. Um, one of the strange objections that I've seen is the fact like an infosec team, for instance, they don't want the website scraped by competitors, so they yeah. don't necessarily want an XML sitemap that exposes all of the product listings that can then be scraped by a competitor. Yeah. There's some strange considerations that you just don't think about normally when you're building a website. And I often find that when I'm working with enterprise clients, 
I have to kind of make sure that I think about these objections and say to them, look, you know, we can make sure that um, competitors don't find it. We just give it to Google. Um, making sure that things are powered fast enough, um, scalable enough, and there isn't going to be an issue, or there isn't going to be a huge amount of load on an API if something's fed through to the homepage. So at what point in your work with a client would you want to start coming, kind of coming across those issues and working to solve them? Is it a case of you kind of wait until something comes up in a task, or, or do you want to do your fact-finding first and try and get as much information before you go into making any other recommendations? We would always recommend having an onboarding session. And yep. usually you discover that they do have issues with uh, like the brand team or they do have issues with a particular team. And they say, look, you know, give us this in advance to make sure that we can go through with this. If we were doing something with GTM as a hack or something, which we do on enterprise sites, um, we want to just test things out. We have to make sure that we can do this. We can talk to the team such as the analytics team, the uh, legal team, whoever it is that might have to sign something off in advance. But generally, if we're working with an in-house SEO team, we rely on them to kind of fight those battles a little bit, but we make sure that we give them everything that they need. A great example there is the fact that we write tickets in, in like a JIRA format rather than just a straight problem and solution. Whereas for a smaller clients, we'll be like, this is the problem, this is the solution, here's some code, get on and do it almost. Whereas yeah. enterprise, I would never give them code because I would just tell them what, I mean, I might give them resources or, or code reference or code samples, but I wouldn't give them like code for their, their client base because it wouldn't make sense for them to kind of understand. It wouldn't make sense for us to try and sort of second guess what they need. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You, you've got to respect that there's probably more than you're going to ever be able to be aware of at one time and, and maybe can't have the whole picture of the situation at any one time as you might be able to with a smaller business or smaller website. Yeah. One of the, um, and this touches upon that because you just reminded me, Jerry, in terms of BBC, and this isn't something I've experienced, but something I saw on, I think it was Twitter the other week, that um, someone was working on uh, their kind of like organic acquisition and focus on SEO at BBC quite a few years ago. I think it was over 10 years ago. And they were looking into kind of the page titles of certain articles and it being limited by length. And the reason why it was limited by length is because that page title fed into what went on teletext <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. So um, they that fundamentally couldn't change, you know, within their in their platform because that fed into kind of an older technology, which is crazy when you think about it in terms of how easily we can make title tank changes on, you know, new, well, not new, but CMSs today of like WordPress, whereas that back then it was obviously a functioning thing because it fed into kind of an older technology. That's correct. I'm trying to remember the name of the guy, but he was an ex-war journalist who was basically rebuilding that. Um, he was an incredibly smart guy. He used to go out for beers with him. <laughs> if we if we can find it, we can always um, post it on the blog or in the podcast notes after this. That's uh, the beauty of recording in advance. <laughs> cool. Uh, there's there's a few different routes we could go down now, and I'm actually gonna I'm gonna deviate slightly from the order that we gave you, Jerry. Sorry, because I think we we've already started talking about this sort of topic of um, around how do we communicate the changes that we want to make. Um, and one of the things that we've kind of discussed beforehand is um, the difference between communicating to the different teams or the different stakeholders that you might come across. And in, in some of what you've said, you've already kind of named a load of different teams that you might encounter from the SEO team to um, legal teams, to technical teams, and then to the business leadership as well. 
So do you have any any tips or anything in your experience for how to kind of modify what you're saying to make it appropriate for the people that you're talking to, to make sure that things get signed off in the right way? Yeah, I, I do find I'm much better at talking to product and tech people than I am at sort of like senior leadership. It's something which I think I'm more comfortable with. But mm. senior leadership, they, they don't really care about how an XML sitemap works. They don't care about the values that you put in it. They care about what it needs and the business benefit. And if you can fit this into a single page, they're much, much happier. I mean, generally speaking, a slide deck for something like this should be three, three slides long, and it should basically say why, what you need, and how to get it done in effect. Mm. Um, that doesn't give you code. It doesn't give you any details about the back-end system. It doesn't give you any implications beyond that. It just sort of says what you need, what the benefits are, or alternatively, what the risk is if you don't do it. Um, one of the things that I often find is that um, our clients want to kind of know a ROI of doing something. Yeah. One of the things that I do find is often it's trying to explain to them that there's a, there's a negative ROI if they don't do it. It's like this is how much you're going to lose if you don't implement this or if your competitors do something, they're going to steal the traffic away from you. Yeah. Well, I was yeah. going to kind of follow up with that. Uh, maybe this is something you want to come in on as well, Ed, with, uh, yeah. see, uh, I'm not a technical SEO specialist, but I've sort of seen enough to know that you can't always exactly quantify the impact that every change is going to have, uh, especially in terms of organic rankings and things. So what, what kind of different tactics do you have for communicating value when it's maybe hard to pin down that exact kind of SEO benefit? Um, yeah, so I think of actually uh, one of the most um, recent kind of content things that I've discovered most recently was I think Tom Critchley created the SEO MBA. And again, it, it's something that I potentially struggled with in the past. And I think very similar to Jerry is that I'm very, I'm quite good at speaking to technical teams and product teams and development teams because I've previously been involved in that work, whether that's through just basic web code into more development aspects. And I think the key issues that he highlighted, he, he highlighted and something that I really resonated is being concise, credible and compelling. Um, so I think those areas alone will allow you to, you know, be concise in terms of what you're actually proposing, being credible in terms of making sure that it's worth the investment and then looking into be compelling in terms of really selling in the dream of, you know, what the results could look like, you know, in year two, three, four. So we can link this again in the show notes in terms of what it discovers. But I think if anyone's having issues with those areas, he's created a great topic on presenting to the CEO in five slides, which I think, again, allows you to avoid the, the details that they probably don't need to know. But it allows you to present information in a way that is, like I said, concise, credible and compelling. Yeah. Jerry, does it always come down to revenue when you're talking to senior leadership in these organizations or are there other areas or other benefits you can talk about that are still meaningful and concrete enough to get your message across? I mean, it ultimately does come back to either revenue or money in some mm -hmm. sort of way. Um, so, for instance, if you're talking about a help desk part of a website, it's amazing how many big websites they've got a help area which is not optimized in search at all. Mm. And this means to them that people are getting tons and tons of phone calls, which could have been answered if their uh, help area was better optimized. Yeah. So if you can turn around to them and say, well, actually, we can stop 50% of your phone calls by actually optimizing this and making your weirdly JavaScript built <laughs> search um, help area kind of work in search, then you will actually save a ton of money. In the same way with things like careers areas, you know, it's surprising how often we've found that careers parts of websites are built using some kind of third-party system that nobody has ever audited because it didn't seem as part of, as important as conversion. Yeah. 
Mm. Ultimately, yeah, the, the KPIs that people have is conversion rates. It's People are obsessed with a lot of metrics where really they should focus on revenue, bounce rate and conversion rate. You know, if you double the amount of traffic, but but the conversion rate goes down, you know, you're still getting more revenue, still getting more, more orders. But it is something where I do find people are obsessed with kind of metrics when really you should be looking at things like revenue or saving money or opportunities rather than anything else. Yeah. Um, again, things like new customer acquisition is often a KPI in businesses, and that's absolutely critical. Um, so yeah. you, you do have to find out from a senior leadership what they're really focused on as much yeah. as trying to tell them ultimately yeah. we're well, going to make you more money. That's great. And I yeah. suppose... Sorry, go on, Ed. I was going to say that that when you mentioned there, like conversion rate, but then new customer acquisition, they can kind of go away against each other because like, mm. it could be that your current customers are you know, familiar with your brand, so there's high intent to purchase, whereas looking to drive new customers, they would need more, I guess, more social proof in everything around it. So they could, you know, be less likely to convert, but you're speaking towards a wider audience. So it kind of a, looks to conflict in a way. I absolutely agree with that. Um, we often have uh, conversion funnels, which, you know, I'm trying to remember the, the best examples of it, but there's loads of different ones of these, but they all kind of feed into different components of attribution. Um, it's kind of like, as you say, basically intent. If you find somebody who's ready to buy at this particular point, that's great. But if you can develop interest, if you can develop brand affinity, if you can develop an understanding of what your product is, I mean, I, if I was buying a car, I'd visit their website 20 times before I bought a yeah. particular vehicle. Yeah. And you kind of understand the customer journey better. Yeah. Conversion rate actually is, is much less important than conversions and actually getting people earlier into the journey. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I suppose being upfront in the ideally in the onboarding stage or whatever point you're able to speak to leadership at the first time is it, you want to be upfront with these conversations and make sure these goals are agreed on beforehand so that they can actually see how your strategy is working uh, rather than quizzing you afterwards on things that you weren't actually aiming for. Yeah. Cool. Um, the other side of, uh, of speaking to people that I wanted to touch on as well is we've talked about the leadership and both of you have said that you're more comfortable speaking to uh, developers and technical teams. Um, so so what, what, are your, what are your tips for doing that at an enterprise level? Do you find there's anything you need to do to, to get things done there? Because again, I, I know it can take a lot longer for stuff to be pushed through, even with the best will in the world, just because these teams are often snowed under. Uh, so, so what's your approach there with getting stuff done? Uh, simply put, basically making sure that you talk to them in the right way. Um, they usually use something like Jira which or an Agile tickets. So user stories, sorry. Um, so basically making sure that the ticket's written in the right way. We often say to them, look, just show us what you actually enter in. So for instance, if there's um, a particular field we need to enter, we make sure it's there written in advance so as we don't have to work with them to kind of add it in later on. Um, user acceptance criteria is often a big one. So mm. if you have something in their system which says you must put in a user acceptance criteria, if we give this to the SEO team as we write out the problem, you know, it might be something as simple as if you go to this URL, there's an XML sitemap that lists like this, and if you, and it's in the correct format and similar bits and pieces. So it's it's comprehensive enough that it kind of works with how they work. And I think that is critical. And if you, a lot of them want references. So for instance, if you're talking about how a redirect should work, they want kind of a reference as to what a redirect is, what the headers yeah. are, what it should look like. So as they can find a little bit more information. But one of the things that I do recommend is not talking to them 
not giving them too much code almost. So for instance, if you tell them they need to create something in their backend, you don't give them the code that you've Googled on the internet. And the reason why not is often it just won't work with their system. It's the wrong version of .NET, .php, or something similar. And they'll experience that feeling that you're almost patronizing them. I mean, when I was at NC, we had an agency that would give us redirects for HT access files. And I'm sort of trying to have to explain to them, we don't have a HT access file. It's the wrong type of server. And, and it just kind of amuses me. And if the that had got through to the developers, the developers would have lost trust in me. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned there from your experience with Just Eat that as the in-house SEO, you felt like you might be responsible for uh, the recommendations that the agency made and they might actually reflect poorly on you if the developers didn't think much of those recommendations. So is, is that something that you now take, uh, now your agency side again, um, take into your communications with the different teams that you're talking about? Uh, and does it help you to sort of consider how you communicate different recommendations to the different teams that you're working with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a good example, though, is that we often find ourselves actually talking directly with developers. The reason why is that when we were playing with uh, Chinese whispers with the in-house marketing teams, we'd often find that things would get lost in translation. So we are finding that now we're being trusted more and more to talk directly to developers. And that is a major, major plus for us because it means their their responses are fed back and any kind of negative responses, if we can challenge or explain to them why something's important, then that's, that's fairly important. Yeah. A lot of the time, yeah, we do feed to the, the, the SEO teams in-house and they kind of translate it through. So we try to make sure that all of the all of the instructions, all the reasoning, all of the data is there ahead of time. So as they can say to their developers, this is it, this is the acceptance criteria, this is the information. As I say, we try not to give them too much code, but at the same time, if we understand the, the, the basics, knowledge and everything like that, we can try and kind of make sure that we do give them links to code and things like that so as they can understand it better it yeah. doesn't necessarily mean we give them code i mean that said using gtm and things like that or we have been known to kind of write code for them and we do have an in-house coder who just makes sure that what i say actually does work right yeah but there's nothing worse than me sort of saying here's some code and they look at it and kind of go no that's not going to work yeah so i mean speaking directly with the with the developers obviously say you prefer that um, is this something again that you would you would ask for early on in the process in working with a newer client, or do you feel like it's something you have to sort of build up that trust first with an enterprise client before they'll then let you go and speak to the developers directly? A lot of the time, the in-house SEO team don't necessarily want us to. They want to act as the gatekeepers, yeah. their priorities. They've got requirements. They've got stuff that they they don't want me to go and say, "Hey, can you just do this? Can you do that?" When it will delay something else. So we do kind of play it by ear a little bit. Um, a lot of other developers, sorry, a lot of other clients, we do sort of find that we're talking to uh, the developers because they don't want to be in the middle of it all. Yeah. There's a particular issue, a particular problem, and they say, yep, okay, here's the email address, get it done. We try to talk to developers as much as possible, keep the client in the loop, make sure that everybody's happy. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there anything else you want to add to that, Ed? Because obviously I know, I know you work with developers quite a lot in your day-to-day -day work as well. No, just kind of reflect what Jerry said. I think initially, like as he said there, I used to be always of the, you know, wanting to provide more. So it feels like I'm <laughs> actually like, again, uh, helping developers out. But as Jerry yeah. said, then it's like, if you're able just to provide what you'd like, like the solution, well, what the situation to kind of be betrayed as, I think a lot of the time they're able to 
decipher that in their own way and it's actually they'll be able to do it in a way that is um customizable towards their process or their systems or anything like that and i think that allows it to be more uh comfortable from an approaching perspective people that maybe are interested in technical seo but have uh, but don't have a much of an understanding in terms of like techno tech setup or the tech stack of a website so therefore if they're explaining an issue they don't have to know the ins and outs of the code but more or less just kind of highlight the issue and work well discuss it with the developer to see if you know they're able to provide any uh, well provide a solution to it I mean, in some way, I can definitely resonate with that because I can see if I was in that kind of situation where I needed to communicate something to the developers, I do not have the technical knowledge to even try and recommend, you know, what to do on their website beyond the very basics. So I would naturally, I suppose, just talk about what the goal is and hope that they know the website better than me. But I suppose maybe there's a temptation if you've got a bit more experience to, to try and do a bit more, as you say, and maybe you have to hold yourself back from that a bit more. Yeah, and as Jerry said, I think it's, you know, feel free to include resources where possible just in case they're interested in it. But I think a lot of the times what you do is find out that, you know, some changes are actually quite simple and they're able to, you know, amend them at a flick of a switch. That's the ideal scenario. But yeah, a lot of the times it's a case of them trying to identify a solution that, that works with, uh, with their, their current tech stack. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we'll, we'll move on to now in sort of the second part of this interview to some of the specific things that might come up more with enterprise level websites than others, especially the larger enterprise sites that we've, we've talked about. Um, and one issue that I, I know Ed's keen to talk about, and Jerry, I think you, when we spoke to you before this came up as well, is um, handling faceted navigation on, on large websites. Um, so I wondered if we could just start by saying in the context of these millions of URL websites, what is it that we're talking about with faceted navigation and, and why is it important to, to get it right? Okay, so um, I think the best example is if you were looking at a site, maybe eBay, eBay's for a good example. I don't know yep. why everyone uses eBay as an example. If you started off and you were looking for a particular, like a electronic keyboard or something like that, you know, yep. I must say, is it a computer keyboard or is it a musical instrument? And then you start to dive down into, is it full-size keys? Is it small keys? How many keys has it got? What color is it? How loud is it? Price range? All of these things can often be filtered down. Mm. The question is, how much of these filters should be exposed to search? And how do you make it? Ex how do you expose it to search without creating millions and millions of pages? Yeah. I'm going to go back to something that I was working on at Just Eat again, um, mainly because I can talk about it now. Um, <laughs> I actually did this at a conference at Ungags um, in. Ooh, when, back when I was allowed to travel still. Um, back in the old days. Oh, I miss the old days, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mentioned this because actually I kind of did some calculations and put them on, on a slide, and I sort of tried to explain that if some work that the developers were doing was kind of actually shown to the internet, basically, as let me rephrase that, if it was, if it was allowed to be crawled, it yeah. would generate millions and millions of URLs. And I, I put on the screen a big number. And I could see a guy in the audience. You mentioned Tom Critchlow. This is Tom Anthony, who works with Tom Critchlow. Um, yeah. And I could see him frowning and writing down something. And, and that realization that somebody was redoing my mathematics. And at the end of it, he came actually and sort of explained to me that the number was even larger. So it's basically billions of URLs. But what I was getting at was that the rate at which Google can crawl a website you can find this out, by the way, by going into Google Search Console and have a look at the in the settings how how fast Google's crawling your website. What I'm getting at is that you can calculate how quickly it will find or re-index all of the pages across your site if you do this. 
And if you take that kind of calculation, extrapolate it, then it can take years, basically, for Google to find new content on a, if you create a crazy number of pages. And it is very, very easy to do that. I've worked on many websites where somehow somebody has made it that they've created what we call a spider trap. And if you're running something like Screaming Frog or a different tool, it, you'll suddenly find that it's kind of spending a, a week or so in one tiny corner of the website and never escaping from it. And you do not want to expose this to Google or a similar search engine because you want to make sure that the right content's indexed or re-indexed as quickly as possible. Yeah. So how do you go about prioritizing the right content if there's potentially millions or billions of different facets that the navigation could return? How do you go about approaching that strategically to stop it being a problem and possibly even turn it into, adv into an advantage if you can get it right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's all down to user research, keyword research. Um, some people love keyword research. Me, uh, it's not my favorite task. If, if yeah. week, but if you have to get it done, you have to get it done right. Yeah. Uh, a great example is if you're working with a clothing brand, you know, one of the facets that people often don't expose is color. Whereas users often search for white shirts or blue shirts or black yeah. shirts or whatever color shirts they're, they're into. And so if you're not exposing that, obviously you're losing out on huge amounts of traffic. So you need to create effectively landing pages. And this is this is the whole point, basically. You're, you're taking the faceted navigation and deciding which one of these should be landing pages. Sometimes it's even down to price, for instance, you know, people searching for gifts under five pounds or something similar. So it, it's all down to user research. Um, if you're talking about a particular piano or keyboard or something, you know, you have to find out how people are searching for it. There's tons and tons of tools out there. I love SEMrush. I love Answer the Public. I love loads of different tools, basically, to look at how people are searching. Yeah. And if you can understand the, the intent, you can decide which pages need to be exposed. And again, I've had so many clients where they've somehow built pages with parameters, which is like the question mark and then the different values as being kind of landing pages. And you find that either the canonical tag or the robots.txt tag means that this isn't really an indexable page. And as a result of that, you're losing huge amounts of traffic with a relatively quick fix. So what is that What is that fix then if we think maybe going to one step beyond that once you've got your list of, um, kind of priority pages that could be surfaced in the faceted navigation, in an ideal world, um, what what would you like to see to make sure that that is being controlled properly and the right pages are being prioritized for search engines? So step one, you try not to make, try not to compound conflicting parameters, which sounds crazy, but basically what you don't want to do is you don't want to have gifts between five pounds and 10 pounds and gifts under five pounds, both sort of selectable. Yeah. And the reason why not is you either get no results or too many results. So anything where it kind of conflicts, you want to basically exclude those. Yeah. You often want to find that if you can compound different parameters, then it doesn't create gazillions of uh, variations. So for instance, I, I talked about shirts. Um, if you've got different colors and different styles and different sizes, if you can select them all, the mass of what you can create is often huge amounts of kind of numbers, particularly across a large e-commerce website. Yeah. So you kind of have to decide if people are searching for a particular pattern or a particular size, are they also searching for it the color? And that's that's kind of yeah. it. You don't want to compound too many parameters. Yeah. That said, I'm currently working on a project at the moment for a client where we are looking at which parameters should be compounded because they're not at the moment allowing that. And that's actually the way people are searching. So we wish I could talk about which client and the keywords, but basically, <laughs> that's all right. 
we are sort of saying, look, you know, if you compound these and create these pages, you yes, you're creating an extra 722 pages, but this is the way in which people are searching for, and there's huge search volume there. Yeah. We can track all the ranking, we can track all the data, so we can find out if it's working or not working, and we can test it. Yeah, that makes sense. And did you want to go on from that, Ed? I was just going to mention, I think I've been in similar scenarios in the past where actually it feeds into more kind more than SEO, where, well, it, it kind of feeds into the SEO opportunity, where it's been the case that there is a, a certain filter has sizable opportunity in terms of the audience out there and the search volume that it presents, but on the client side, they haven't got enough products to fulfill that area or information to fulfill that area. And therefore, I was feeding that back to the client. They actually go, actually, we, we should fulfill that area. Like, we should have more products in that. And then that changes their angle from a business perspective that, you know, whenever uh, looking to invest more in these products or, or um, especially from a trend perspective, understanding what they should be invested in, that actually feeds into a more of a business objective as well. So I think it, whilst this is all fascinating as well, I think it helps educate the business in terms of the way that people search and the search demand that is out there for particular categories or products. And that depends on knowing the client as well, doesn't it? Because I know yeah. we've worked on clients where they're happy to go and make recommendations for other mm. projects and take keyword data as a good indication of demand, but not everyone is going to be in that boat, are they? Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they don't have the flexibility to change that product range at all. No, no. Cool. A follow-up question I had from this, and maybe this is where me in sort of my, my more content-focused world where I'm more going from page to page, this is the natural question that comes to mind. When you're working on these massive, massive websites with millions of URLs, hundreds, thousands, facets, whatever it is, is there any room for focusing on specific URLs um, in terms of kind of individual page level optimization? Or do we have to keep everything at the macro site-wide level to see any kind of meaningful impact? Oh, no, absolutely. Um, I think it's really important to, to kind of spend a little bit of time focusing on the, the real value. It's one of those 80-20 things. You, you have to kind yeah. of understand what will return value and what won't return value. But it is amazing how often you've got a website with millions of unfocused, unoptimized pages, and you kind of understand that that is why all of the bigger retailers who are slightly more focused are smashing you. is because you don't have the right content. You don't have the right user experience on those yeah. pages. The niche players will often out outwin the kind of the bigger players on that basis. So you're right, basically. That yes, you you kind of do need to be able to focus on those key pages. That said, it is often a big challenge. I mean, one of the big challenges I've seen from e-commerce retailers is product descriptions. It's often very short, and it's fed in from the database that they get. So it's duplicated across millions of other pages. Yeah. So to try and explain to them that, you know, they have a slight duplication issue where they've got thin content for their product descriptions. And it's the same thin content that's on every other website, including companies like Amazon and places like that, where Amazon have complemented it with user generated content and other content. So yeah, getting back to the original question, because I think I deviated slightly. Um, yeah, campaign pages, um, products pages where it's a particular focus, something where you can kind of take something and really enhance it, you'll generate a lot more revenue by doing that. But it is something where when we do this kind of thing for clients, we sort of want to be able to kind of replicate and scale it. So we want to be able to say, if you've created a particular page for a particular brand, can we do the same work for another brand? And yeah. can we do it with the same building blocks? Have you got a CMS behind it? Because you don't want to manually create a page in a development environment that then can't be replicated. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I found in my experience as well, 
working on slightly larger websites, putting in the processes in place for the future when it comes to content, uh, as well as getting the technical controls right, is is vital because these sites aren't going to be staying still with the list of URLs that you first start working on. They're going to be adding thousands more. And if you don't get those processes right, you're just going to come back to the same problems in three months' time. One of the things that I do find amusing or, or frustrating, whichever way you want to turn around it, <laughs> is the fact that clients often don't focus on kind of evergreen approach. They'll yeah. make a Valentine's Day campaign for 2020, and then it's a different URL, different page, different configuration for 2021. Yeah. And Google will often, if you search for brand plus Valentine's or brand plus Black Friday, they'll often find last year's version of it. It is amazing how many websites have got a dozen different sale pages or so many minor variations of it like spring sale it's like use the same url use the same sale page you can update it constantly you can fix it but don't have 20 different pages and then next year you've got 40 and next year you've got 60. it's just not yeah. going to it's, it's not scalable do you see yeah, i've seen a great example so sorry I just, I've, seen a, I've seen a great example of that where i think it was luke carthy that uh, demonstrated it with bmw where they had i think it was like an electric car page but they introduced years ago um and i think it ranked quite well at the time however they they removed that page and then looked to introduce the product offering about two years later in a completely different url um i guess like obviously from a bmw perspective probably organic acquisition isn't the you know the huge focus but it was just an interesting to see that they had so much press talking about that individual uh, that area of the website which was which had built up a lot of value which then only just got dumped and then replaced with a, a completely different URL. yeah i mean and, and this brings on to the the question i had there as well which which applies to both of those different examples which is is it the agency's responsibility to spot that before it happens or do we need to rely on these larger companies kind of updating us on campaigns and filling us in on this information so that we can then catch potential issues? And which one comes first? Being a agency, and, and I don't mean this to criticize any of our current clients, but one of the things I've experienced over my time is the fact that often the person that you're working with has been there for six months. So they'll kind of turn around and say, oh yeah, we need a sale page. I've just created a sale page and, and they won't afford to check, is there a sale page from last year and the year before almost. It's, it is kind of a challenge where they will have to have done a task and it's somebody says, go create a sale page. And they won't sort of turn around to the SEO agency and kind of go, what are your recommendations for creating a sale page? It's often far more basic. It's like, we created a sale page. Can you go optimize it? which is possibly the worst, most frustrating expression ever. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what are the keywords we need to include in it? The page you've created on the URL that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we've uh, we've all faced situations like that. Um, but it's it's good to hear that that context of, I guess, where it comes from uh, kind of in-house as well. But, and recognizing that the reality there is that there's change within the clients as well. Um, and as agencies, it's helpful for us to be aware of how that change to their personnel, maybe changes to their strategies might be impacting on um, on decisions which then have an impact on things like duplicate content and, and other landing pages like that. Cool. The, the, the final thing I wanted to touch on before we finish um, uh, is, is just to say this is a massive topic and I think there's things we've we've touched on, I think we've kind of skirted around duplicate and thin content without really going into it when uh, that could be a conversation in its own right. 
But um, Jerry, I did just want to ask you before we finish, um, are there any resources or maybe you know people to follow on social media or just anything that you would recommend for people who are interested in this and are interested in learning more and staying up to date with uh, kind of the latest trends and best practices? Where, where would you recommend those people go? Oh yeah, Twitter is my first stop. Um, basically following all the people that I like to understand more about almost. And they're often not dedicated SEO people. They're people yeah. who understand the commercials of it. You mentioned people like Tom Critchlow, Tom Anthony. Um, there's people like Nick Wilson, Omicido. I'm trying to remember some other people right now. Obviously follow me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I follow a huge ton of people basically. And I find that I don't need to kind of almost worry about looking at the resources. Although I do kind of uh, reach out and read some of the resources myself, but I do find that these people share the best um, resources around. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is people can go and follow you first and then they can look at your list of who you're following and that'll be enough for them. Yeah, I try to retweet the good stuff. I try <laughs> to share the good stuff. So yeah, absolutely. Um, awesome. The other person, the other newsletters to follow as well. There's a few newsletters out at the moment. Aleda's newsletter is particularly yeah. good. Um, I'm trying to think who else is. I've seen quite a few people suddenly creating newsletters as well, which are really useful. Yeah, I, I mean, think I, think that, um, I saw uh, Adam Gent. He posted, I think it's yeah. called the Sprint. I think it is. Um, yeah, the SEO Sprint, which talks about some of the topics we're talking about about today in terms of um, feeding SEO into product, which is only just started, but looks like a worthwhile um, yeah subscribe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We'll put these links in the, as I said, in the blog and in the show notes as well. I think one for me to throw in there. Um, which Ed's already mentioned is Tom Critchlow's SEO MBA mm -hmm. newsletter, which I know we're we're both fans of, um, particularly on the sort of communication side and where we've been talking about communicating to management and uh, getting things done with your clients. Uh, that that newsletter is really good for that, uh, even if it sort of touches less on the the technical side of things that we've discussed. <laughs> cool. Well, I think we've uh, we've set up for the final question now, Jerry. Which is how can people find you on social media? Uh, and is there anything else you want to mention for the audience before we let you go? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm generally speaking on Twitter more than anywhere else. We, and my Twitter handle is a bit of a strange one, which is Dergal, which is D-E-R-G-A-L. Yep. Um, don't ask the history of that. It's a long one, but I've been using it for 20 I have years. wondered. <laughs> I'll tell you one day. Um, but yeah, the other thing is uh, Take It Offline, of course, which is the weird like offline conferencing that usually works when there isn't a coronavirus pandemic but basically it's kind of trying to get people talking to other people in the industry yeah. over a beer over something usually a, a topic focus we've done everything from outreach link building through to google analytics and things like that and and hopefully that will return in 2021 if not 2022 we were cool. supposed to be having an amazing um event in bucharest but that sadly got cancelled last year Oh man, well, we'll have to hope that with the world gradually getting back to normal, those kind of things will be around sooner rather than later again. Yeah. And uh, of course, we will we'll link to all of this. Uh, we'll make sure people can find you. Um, if you're listening to this as a podcast, uh, there will be a blog version as well on impression.co.uk slash blog. Uh, so please do go there to find all of these resources uh, or check in your show notes and we'll try and include as many links as possible there. Um, and that will do it for the main part of this week's Rank Up podcast episode. I want to say a big thank you to Jerry for coming on and uh, sharing all about enterprise SEO. Uh, it's been thank great you. to have you, Jerry. Thank you. And uh, thanks again to Ed, uh, as always, who uh, has been here to support me and uh, add some extra insight. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ben. 
Um, and uh, yeah, we'll be back in a couple of weeks time with more on-page SEO content. I believe the next episode, if everything goes to plan, will be Diana Richardson from SEMrush, uh, which will be uh, another another first for, uh, for this podcast, having uh, Diana, who's a, a social media manager now, but has a history in search and uh, is kind of constantly in conversation with the search community. So it'll be really interesting to chat to her shortly. Uh, and we're excited to continue bringing you a variety of voices from the industry in 2021. As always, in the meantime, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review on the podcast app of your choice. Uh, everything on any platform really helps. So wherever you're listening, uh, please, please do feel free to leave a review. And you can follow myself and Ed on Twitter at Ben J. Gary with two R's and at Ed JTW with two D's. Uh, and of course, in the meantime, you can also check out the Impression blog at impression.co.uk slash blog, uh, and also check out the uh, the accompanying podcast to this one, Outspeech, uh, where Laura, our head of PR, does a similar thing to what we're doing now, but all looking at off-page and digital PR. Uh, and she's got interviews with people like Tim Sulo from Ahrefs uh, and Kirsty Holse up already. Uh, so that's well worth checking out. Jerry, thanks again for coming on today. Ed, thank you. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks for your next installment of On Page Conversation. Thanks, everyone.